Ooh, verse 3 is on my mind. Not Jude chapter 3. Jude, we're going to read verses 1 through 3 in just a moment. To get started, I meant to say before I told you the text, I'm going to preach through an entire book of the Bible this morning. Then look to see who was getting nervous and who was spiritual. I'll go ahead and switch my microphone out now. All right, you got me. Can you hear me? Good and clear. Thank you, Andrew, for all of your help today. I'm glad that you all are here this morning. This message has been in my heart for quite a while. And when I first started as pastor, I said I had a few messages written down that I considered to be foundational type of messages. And this is one of them this morning. It's taken me one of the longest to get to. I actually had some old sermon notes that were on this topic. And I looked and I couldn't find them. And I really wanted to see what I had written before years earlier. And I looked and they just weren't there. And I think God told me, just go ahead and don't worry about whatever notes you had that you wanted to consult before and go ahead and go through the text and make this sermon. So I think this might be one of the last ones that I started out in the beginning having written down looking as foundational type of messages. But I'm glad that all of you are here this morning and this message is on my heart. So as I already prayed that the Lord would help me, I hope that he will help me to get it out and that you will be able to see some of my heart and some of my beliefs on what God has called us to do, which verse 3 says is to earnestly contend for the faith, but yet how we are supposed to do it later on in the chapter, which tells us we are to do it with compassion. So Lord, please help me. Let's go ahead. Jude and verse number 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Most believe that this short little book of Jude with just 25 verses was written by the brother, or should we say stepbrother, of Jesus Christ. Christ. We see different points in the text that his brothers or his sisters sort of had a negative attitude towards Jesus. So maybe Jude was one of them who at first did, but then later as he was converted and saw evidence of his ministry, that this man in whose home he was raised together, that Jesus being the son of God and having Mary as his earthly mother, that this Jude would have Mary and Joseph as his parents and be raised in the same household as Jesus Christ. It has been said that the book of Jude could be considered a hallway into the book of Revelation. That if the book of Revelation tells us what is to come in the last days, that the book of Jude tells us what it will be like to live in the last days before those prophecies begin to unfold. We see in verse number one that this is written to Christians. It's written to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. And as we go to launch right into the message now, in verse number 3, he says to the beloved, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. What is the common salvation? That is the gospel. That's John 3.16. That's 1 Corinthians 15.1-4. It's that we were in our sins and on our way to hell, but that Jesus died in our place. And if we will in repentance and faith turn to Him and claim that promise and call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. He says, that's what I gave all diligence to write unto you about. But then he says, it was needful for me to write unto you. In other words, as I just was thinking that I would write about the common salvation and that was my plan, it was necessary. It came to my mind, the Holy Spirit showed me that as I write to you about the common salvation, it's needful for me that I write unto you this, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Number one, we are called to contend for the faith. We are called to contend for the faith. We know what faith is by itself. It's us trusting God. God makes a promise. We can't see it altogether proved, but we believe God. We know that there's a heaven because Jesus said there's a heaven. We've never been there, but we believe it by faith, and this pleases God. However, verse number three is talking of something a little bit different when it says, "...the faith." which was once delivered unto the saints. What he is talking about here in this verse is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, through His prophets and through His apostles, have given us 
His Word. And that within His Word, there is a body of doctrines, or rather teachings, that make up what we could call the faith. They're different teachings, they're different doctrines, but there are so many of them that are bedrock, fundamental, important to the faith, that if we were to remove them, it would undermine our faith itself. And he says it's going to be necessary for you to contend for that faith which was once delivered to the saints by God to the church. The term fundamentalist in America originally came about because there were institutions that claimed to be Christian institutions. And then all of a sudden they said, well, we need to, to hire professors who, who you know are a little bit more well-trained. And some of them were not Christians. And they began in the days of J. Frank Norris over in Fort Worth, Texas, Christian institutions to allow evolution to be taught in their school. And he said, wait a minute, the Bible says God created everything in six literal days by speaking it out of his mouth. We're going to have to separate from people who are not standing up for the fundamentals of the faith. They were originally called fundamentalists because they said there are some doctrines, some teachings that are so vitally important to our faith that if you were to remove them, you wouldn't even have the faith anymore. And today the term is... Uh, I. It, the term is divisive and controversial and people would say to me, are you a fundamentalist? And I would say, well, define fundamentalist. And then I'll be able exactly to tell you what I am and what I believe in. But it was originally instituted because they said, if we take the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the fact that He's the Son of God and that He never sinned, and we say, well, we're going to take that and change it. We think maybe Joseph was His father and maybe He was just a man like us, but He taught us some good things. They say, no, that doctrine of Jesus being God and of Jesus being sinless, is so fundamental to our faith itself that if you removed it, we don't have a faith anymore. And so they made a list of the Bible being the inspired Word of God and Jesus being the Son of God and His blood as the only way to get to heaven and so on and so on and said these are the bare minimum bedrock fundamentals of our faith that if they are removed, it will undermine the Bible itself and we will not walk with or have fellowship with those who attack the character of God by going against the teachings of his word and therefore we are going to separate we are going to contend for the faith the word contend means to struggle for to fight for basically it's telling us we have to stand up for what is it telling us we have to stand up for it is the bible and the teachings therein itself First Corinthians eleven sixteen says, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. In other words, God has called us to contend for the truth without being contentious. That we're not looking for a fight all the time. We're not looking to fight just because we like to fight. We're not looking to fight because we want to prove that we're the purest or we're the only right ones but rather because we know that it is the Word of God and that God has called us to contend for the faith. It is the Bible itself and its doctrines that we stand for. Therefore, I'll note before I continue further, we must properly interpret the Bible. If we leave sections of it out, if we take verses and rip them out of context and we don't compare Scripture with Scripture and look at what the rest of the Bible says, we're going to end up fighting over stuff that God perhaps didn't want us to fight about. The first Wednesday night series I taught uh, on Wednesday nights after I was the pastor was continuing in sin from Romans 6 and 7. I talked about how my brother John had made friends with a group of people that believed this one Bible teacher very voraciously and how he taught from Romans 6 and 7 that you basically can get into sinless perfection if you just claim it by faith. And we talked about how that's not really what the Bible teaches. You have to be careful about thinking that you can reach sinless perfection because maybe then in your pride you're committing sin anyway. And First John says if we say that we have no sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And the man who taught through that series uh, at one point he said, I, I went through and I made this lesson and I taught my doctrine and then later afterwards he said, I got curious what other people had to say, so then I went and bought a bunch of commentaries to see if they agreed with me or not. Now, commentaries aren't Bible, but if you start looking at them and all of a sudden it seems like every good Bible teacher in history says something different than you, you might want to stop and back up and look. That's why normal sermon preparation would be to check yourself before you begin to teach it rather than afterwards. And so I was like, okay, this is interesting. I like commentaries. So was he going to say they were split? And he said, as I bought commentary after commentary, he said, not a single one of them agreed with me. 
He said, and then he said, as a matter of fact, I'm the only preacher I know who has this right. I suppose that's possible, but it's probably not very probable. So we have to look at the Bible in context. Who is speaking? Who are they speaking to? Is it describing the situation or is it prescribing what we are to do in all situations? But as we rightly divide the word of truth, we will be able to have a list of things that the Bible unequivocally teaches. And if you deny what the Bible says, you are denying God and the authority of His word. Truth is worth fighting for. I don't, I don't like to fight. I don't like arguments. Even so, sometimes at work or whatever it is where I really feel like there's a time I need to stand up for myself because someone's in the wrong. And I need to let them know I don't thrive on that type of stuff. Some people do. They like it. They're not happy unless they're mad. They just like to, to you know, tango and go back and forth. And they're all about that dance and that you probably have people come into your mind right now. They just want to argue about everything. That's not my personality. I don't like that. But the, and there's a lot of things that are not worth fighting about. We should separate over doctrine, not over trivial matters, not over our own opinions. But when it comes down to the Word of God and the truth that therein is contained, shame on us if we are not willing sometimes to stand up and bear reproach or get into a tussle or a fight and say, I believe God and I will stand up for what His Word says. The Scriptures are full of verses telling us to do this. Romans 16, 17, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Some people who are going against the teachings of the Bible, you have to mark them by naming them, by calling them out and recognizing them, and then avoid them. Ephesians 5, 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. The truth is under attack and it will always be under attack. And as the church of God, we must be willing to contend for and to stand up for the truth. Let's go through a good bit of this text here this morning. I'm going to keep try to keep moving because I have a lot I want to say today. Jude and verse number 4. Why do we have to stand up for the faith? Because, verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He says it's going to be necessary for you to contend for the truth and stand up for the faith because there will be certain men who creep in unaware to you, unknowing. They will come in among the church itself. The Apostle Paul told the elders of the church in Acts 20, be careful because after I leave, there will be grievous wolves which will enter in among the flock, not caring for the flock, but looking to make disciples for themselves. Be careful. All throughout the Bible, he tells us at some point, people will come into the church with their own agenda that will look to teach something different against the truth. It says in that verse, they were ordained by God because of His foreknowledge unto condemnation or judgment because they would turn the grace of God into lasciviousness or lustful sin. And the end of verse 4 says, denying the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. First John tells us that if any man does not believe in Jesus, they do not believe in the Father. You cannot claim one without the other. First John says he is antichrist that denieth that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Jude and Second Peter chapter 2, though they are written by different authors, are very close to being parallel passages. And in Second Peter 2, he begins the same thing and gives example and point and then counterpoint and says that the point of it is that God knows how to deliver the judgment and how to deliver the ungodly to judgment. God does both. He saved the people out of Egypt, but afterward He caused the waters to come down on Pharaoh and his soldiers, and they died. He destroyed them that believed not. And God is a God that will deliver those who come to Him for deliverance, but God is also a God who will pronounce judgment on those who reject Him. Verse 6, it gives us a few more examples. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. There are some angels which sinned, which followed Lucifer, which fell and did sins, and some of them are wrapped in chains right now in hell, the Bible tells us. Verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example suffering the vengeance 
of eternal fire. The Old Testament is the Word of God too. Jesus Christ Himself said Noah and the ark, Adam and Eve, and yes, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah are true stories. And if they didn't happen, then Jesus would be a liar and Jesus would not be God. He upheld the Old Testament stories as true, not as made-up fiction to illustrate a point. But there was a literal group of cities called Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, who the text here says gave themselves over to fornication in the Old Testament. The men of the city came around and wanted to commit acts of homosexuality with uh, Lot and the men who were there the angels who were there with him. And the Word of God tells us that in judgment for their continued unrepentant sin, God Himself sent down fire from heaven to destroy them. Yes, God judges sin. Verse 8. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. One mark of these people who were supposed to watch out for, who are the false prophets, is that they would not be afraid to speak evil of dignities. People in positions of authority and power, rulers in the land. And then it says, But when God took the body of Moses and and buried him, he didn't let the devil know where the body of Moses was to be buried. I personally believe, and many do, that's because they would have been tempted to make a shrine and a tomb to Moses and maybe come by and worship him and make it a sepulcher and a holy ground site. But God wanted his people to know, don't worship and celebrate Moses. Celebrate and worship the God of Moses, for he is the one who gave the power. And Michael the archangel contended and had an argument with the devil. And the devil said, I want Moses' body. Where is it. Let me know where God is having you put it. And Michael, instead of bringing a railing accusation against the devil, simply turned and said, The Lord rebuke thee, thereby giving us the example, be careful to speak evil and disrespectful of people who are in authority. Even if we have to call them out for their sins and call them out where they're wrong, they still are in a place that was appointed by God. And we need to show honor. I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can, verses 10 through 19, mostly reading, then we'll do a lot of application. Verse 10, But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beast, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. I, don't, I, I, I want to stop and preach on all of these. I'm trying to get to my main point. But remember, these are false prophets. These are people who have rejected God. They're like the sons of Korah who rebelled against Moses, and the earth swallowed them up. They're like Balaam who went for the reward and for the money. Verse 12, These are spots in your feast of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. In other words, when you meet with feasts of love and fellowship, they're there among you, but they're dark spots among you. That should not be among the church because they're not even saved. They don't have reverence. They're there simply to feed themselves. And then it says they're as clouds without water. What does that mean? Carried about with winds. The New Testament says, be careful that you be not carried about with every wind of doctrine. Someone teaches something new you've never heard before. And oh, that sounds neat. And now you're ready to change your mind and veer off from the course of what the Word of God teaches. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Then it says they're like trees. But what kinds of trees? Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Verse 13 says, Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. That as the wave comes to the shore and puts forth the foam, so what comes forth out of their life are shameful, sinful things. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What is the end of such people? It is the lake of fire itself. It is eternal condemnation. The blackness of darkness for how long? forever. This is what it would mean for our souls to reject God. Verse 14, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
He says that even in the day of Enoch, he preached about the time when Christ would come, not in the rapture for his church, but about the time he would come with ten thousands of his saints to the earth for the purpose of executing judgment and setting up his kingdom. It's been preached about ever since the days of Enoch. And one day it will come true. Verse 16, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. This is one of those old English phraseologies that you really got to stop and go back and look or you're probably going to miss it. What it's saying is they murmur, they complain, they're walking after lust, but then they speak great swelling words. In other words, words of flattery. They will come to you as Proverbs says, be careful the one who comes with only flattery for you because they have their own end and they're desiring to pull you into their scheme or into their sin and their flattery is not really genuine. It's meant to trick you and pull you in and they have men's persons in admiration. In other words, there's men who they admire and they flatter up because of advantage so that they themselves can gain advantage by it. Verse 17, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after own, uh, their own ungodly lust. And brothers and sisters, truly we are in this last time seeing the mockers who question God. Verse 19, these be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. If you walk for God at all, as I said, you can be a legalist. You can come up with a bunch of rules that the Bible doesn't teach. But if you stand for God at all, for anything, at some point you'll probably be called narrow-minded. At some point you'll probably be called a legalist and here the, and, and a separatist. But here it says these people are the ones who separate themselves. In other words, they used to maybe believe the truth. And our society used to be more grounded to the Word of God. And the more we stay in the same place and the world separates themselves into sin and drifts away, the more we're going to look like we're separated from what's normal if we just continue to stand where we have always stood. We are supposed to stand up against these enemies of the truth for the faith, which is the Bible. What is the Bible? The Bible is truth. John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Psalm 119, 160, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. The Bible that is I'm holding in my hand and you have on your lap here this morning, I believe by faith is the inspired, infallible, preserved word of God. It's not the words of men. It is the words of God. There's no contradiction. There's nothing wrong in it. It's all the truth. And it's all from God. There's a phrase of my generation that I have come to absolutely despise where you will hear people say this over and over again. They'll say, well, you go ahead and tell your truth. And I'm just going to speak my truth. In other words, it's a new way of putting something that has been around a long time. There's not really truth and there's not really error. It just depends on your point of view. What's your truth? What's my truth? I'm here to tell you this morning that objectively there are some things that are true and some things that are false and some things that are the truth, whether it's your truth or not. The color white is white. The color black is black. Two plus two equals four, whether it's your truth or not. The man who's born a man is a man and can't change into a woman simply by saying it, whether it's your truth or not. It's evil to abuse a little child, and that is evil, whether it's your truth or not. There is objective truth, and it all comes from God, and it comes from the Word of God. Uh, oh, Lord, please help me. I don't know how I'm going to do on time this morning, but I'm just going to keep on going and see how I can get it in. And if this next place loses your attention a little bit or bores you, I'm sorry. But as I read these words, I can't, can never do a good job of reading it as he spoke it, but I get chills from listening. This is Charles Spurgeon speaking to the preachers in his preacher's college. The book is called Lectures to My Students. It's a classic. I haven't made it through the whole thing yet, but I absolutely love to read him just talking with his preacher students off the cuff and how he describes issues in their day. That reminds us of the very issues in our day. And he gave a talk called The Need of the Decision for Truth, and this is what he had to say. Spurgeon says, some things are true and some things are false. I regard that as an axiom, but there are many persons who evidently do not believe it. The current principle of the present age seems to be some things are either true or false according to the point of view from which you look at them. Black is white and white is black according to the circumstances, and it does not particularly matter what you call it. 
Truth, of course, is truth. But I would be rude to say that the opposite is a lie. We must not be bigoted, but remember the motto, so many men, so many minds. Then Spurgeon says, our forefathers were particular about maintaining landmarks. They had strong notions about fixed points of revealed doctrine and were very tenacious of what they believed to be scriptural. Their fields were protected by hedges and ditches, but their sons have grubbed up the hedges, filled up the ditches, laid all level, and played at leapfrog with the boundary stones. In other words, the people used to stand in one place and not move, but often their successors and those who follow begin to play around with the truth till the lines are blurred. He continues, the school of modern thought laughs at the ridiculous positiveness of the reformers and Puritans. It is advancing in glorious liberality and before long will publish a grand alliance between heaven and hell or rather an amalgamation of the two establishments upon terms of mutual concessions, allowing falsehood and truth to lay side by side like the lion with the lamb. Still, for all that, my firm, old-fashioned belief is that some doctrines are true and that statements which are diametrically opposed to them are not true. That when no is the fact, yes is out of court. And that when yes can be justified, no must be abandoned. He tells the preachers listening to him, We are not sent forth by our master with a general commission arranged on this fashion. As you shall think in your heart and invent in your head, so preach. Keep abreast of the times. Whatever the people want to hear, tell them that, and they shall be saved. Verily we read not so. There is something definite in the Bible. It is not quite a lump of wax to be shaped at our will, or a roll of cloth to be cut according to the prevailing fashion. Your great thinkers evidently look upon Scripture as a box of letters for them to play with and make what they like of or a wizard's bottle, out of which they may pour anything they choose, from atheism to spiritualism. I am too old-fashioned to fall down and worship this theory. There is something told me in the Bible, told me for certain, not put before me with a but, and a perhaps, or an if, or a maybe, and 50,000 suspicions behind it, so that really the long and short of it is that it may not be so at all but revealed to me as infallible fact which comes, which must be believed, the opposite of which is deadly error and comes from the father of lies. Believing, therefore, that there is such a thing as truth and such a thing as falsehood, that there are truths in the Bible, that the gospel consists in something definite which is to be believed by men, it becomes us to be decided as to what we teach and to teach it in a decided manner. We have to deal with men who will either be lost or saved, and they certainly will not be saved by erroneous doctrine. And the conditions that he described in his day have no doubt existed in every day to one degree or another, but boy, do we ever see them every day. Then he tells them quickly, I'm almost done with this part, Brethren, in what ought we to be positive? He starts describing what I was talking about, the collection of doctrines that is so important that we have to stand for. This is what Spurgeon says. And as for us... As for me at any rate, I am certain that there is a God. And I mean to preach it as a man who is absolutely sure. We are equally certain that the book, which is called the Bible, is God's Word. And it is inspired. We are also sure concerning the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity. We cannot explain how the Father, Son, and Spirit can be each one distinct and perfect in himself, and yet that these three are one, so that there is one God. Then he says, yet we do verily believe it and mean to preach it. And brethren, there will be no uncertain sound from us as to the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. We we cannot leave the blood out of our ministry. The certainty that no man is regenerated except by Him, and that we are born again by the Spirit of God, that the Spirit dwells in believers and is the author of all good in them, their sanctifier and preserver, without whom they can do no good thing whatsoever. We shall not at all hesitate to preaching these truths. He says the necessity of the new birth and that ye must be born again. Neither will we give an uncertain sound as to the glorious truth that salvation is all of grace and that justification is all of faith. One more phrase. And everything else which we believe to be true in the Scriptures, we shall preach with decision. 
If there be questions which may be regarded as moot or comparatively unimportant, we shall speak with such a measure of decision about them as may be comely. But points which cannot be moot, which are essential and fundamental, will be declared by us without any stammering, without any inquiring of the people. What would you wish us to say? Yes, and without the apology. Those are just my views, and other people's views may be correct. We ought to preach the gospel not as our views at all, but as the mind of God. Do you see what I'm talking about? He said, these things we will teach. The Bible says that Jesus taught them as one having authority. Paul told Timothy or Titus, one of them, when you're preaching these things, do it with all authority because they're not my opinions or your opinions. And if they were, then what right do we have to tell anyone? But there are some things that are unequivocally the Word of God that we have to stand for. That's the truth we have to contend for. There will be enemies in opposition to the truth. There has been in every day and there will be in ours. A few years back, Hillary Clinton was running for president and she was giving a speech about reproductive health care, which by their interpretation would include abortion, which is also a lie because killing a baby for convenience and lifestyle reasons is not health care. She said this, deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. In other words, the world is changing, and of the things she said are just going to have to change along with them are religious beliefs. So take what your doctrines are. Take what the Bible says. And if society and government demands it, it's time for you to change it. Just a couple years back here, before the 2020 election, the Democratic Party held a town hall on issues related to the LGBTQ, what they would describe it, that the Bible describes as sin. And the candidates were all giving their their answers to the questions. And uh, one, Beto O'Rourke, said that he was asked if a church discriminates at all against those type of people, should they be able to keep their tax-exempt status? And he said, no, if they say we're not going to let them join our church because they're in that sin, or we're not going to do a gay wedding because the Bible commands we don't, he said we're going to take their tax-exempt status. You say, well, that, I mean, that's, that's not nice, that's kind of prejudicial, but, you know, paying taxes, it's not just about paying taxes, because if you look at cases, states in the, cases in the states of Oregon and Colorado and all around the country, they go to a baker, they drive past five or six other bakeries who would make them a cake for their gay wedding with no problem at all, and they go into one that they know is run by a Christian, and they say, I demand you partake in my ceremony by making a cake with two men or two women on it, and the person says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. My conscience won't allow me. And they go to the courts and they sue them. Every law that is passed is only a law if it has the threat of a gun behind it to enforce it. You obey, you go along, or you go to prison. And with the one lady in Oregon, they find her $50,000 and she said, well, I'm sorry, I still can't do that. And they find her another fifty and another fifty till she closed her doors because she couldn't exist that way. She either had to capitulate and partake in what she believed the Bible said was sin or else lose it and she closed the doors. So overnight in America, if they apply those same standards to churches, then a church will give in and capitulate or they will be fined and fined and fined until they're not around anymore. Verse 7 of the book of Jude mentioned that same sin. But let, me, let me just say this for just a moment. I, I think everybody here, nobody, it's your, nobody here is your first time, and I'm kind of glad for that, because I think if you know me and the way that I preach, I don't get up every Sunday and, and get into the most controversial issues and go after it as hard as I can, and, oh, I just want my preaching to be hard and be controversial. There's a stereotype of young preachers that, as the one professor told the group of young preachers, he said, if, if what you have to say is good, it'll stick. You don't have to throw it quite so hard. In other words, there's, there's sort of this stereotype of when you're young, you're fired up and you just want to fight the whole world and your mind is made up. And then you get old and you get a little bit wiser and, and you know, you kind of tone down a little bit and you learn where you made your mistakes. I'm not trying, I intentionally try not to be the most controversial I can be, to be what they would call a shock jock, that I just say things so that people will get a reaction and that people say, oh, I wonder what he's going to say next. I'm going to go there. 
one preacher in, in Arizona started a church and started putting videos up on YouTube and the one was called Why Billy Graham is Going to Hell and the other one was called Why Charles Spurgeon is Going to Hell and why basically every other teacher in America has something wrong with them and they're a false teacher and I guess that leaves him as the, the correct teacher and people started leaving their churches and moving from other states to drive where he was to join his church because they thought he was the only one who had it right and I'm not here trying to do that. I try to weigh my words carefully But Brother Darren, I made up my mind as I thought about it and I prayed about it. And if the day comes in my lifetime, which could come very soon, I would not be surprised where they say you are not allowed to have freedom of speech to preach that homosexuality is a sin as they've already done in Europe and already done in Canada. Brother Darren, if they do that here, I made up my mind. I will preach on it the next Sunday. Because truth is truth. Because most of all, we have to obey God, not men. And do it lovingly with compassion, which is where I'm trying to get to in a moment. But the other part of that is strategically, sometimes if you don't stand up for your rights the first time they are infringed upon, then you will lose it all together. And if every preacher in America that had courage stood up and preached about it the day after a law was passed, there's just a chance that they might decide they don't want the news to record that many preachers being thrown in jail. That's what Martin Luther King Jr. did. He said, we're going to stand up for our rights, but we're willing to pay the price. And as people saw the horrible things that were happening to them, it changed the tide of public opinion. If I'm going to claim that I'm a minister of God and I'm going to try and claim that I'm here to be His servant and not my own, there are some things that I'm just going to have to stand for or else my conscience will not allow me to have peace. Oh, Lord, help me. I've got too much to get through. I'm just going to keep going and see what I can do. In one of Shakespeare's plays, he wrote about a group of men who on the eve of Crispin's day were getting ready to go into battle and to fight for their liberty. And as the speech was being given to rally the troops, this word was said by the character, The day will come when a man will strip his sleeves and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin's day shall ne'er go by. From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We, we happy few, we band of brothers. For here today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall dental, gentle his condition. Now he's, he's talking about the glory of battle and standing up for what's right. And we're not here for our own glory to be able to say one day, well, oh, this is what we did. We're here for Jesus Christ. But the point I want to make is then he talked about men who were afraid and who would not go into the battle and who showed cowardice when the heat was on. He said, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed that were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that he fought with us on St. Crispin's Day. In other words, he said there'll come a day in the future when we'll talk about the day we fought for our freedom and old men will roll up their sleeves and show their scars and say, this was my battle scar and this is what happened when we fought for liberty and some of my brothers died and didn't even make it, but we stood together. And he said then on that day, perhaps some who ran the other way and who were afraid to fight will be ashamed that they have not a story to tell because they laid down. I'm just here to tell you that if Jesus Christ Himself was nailed to a cross and died, and if His apostles and disciples and preachers were thrown into a lion's den and burned at the stake for preaching the truth, then shame on me if I will not have the courage to say this is the truth of what the Word of God says, and we will not change it no matter the opposition. With God as my witness, as long as I'm in this position, this church will stand for truth. And in our day and age, standing for the truth at all will get you called a whole bunch of names. Bigot, hater, homophobe, sexist, narrow-minded, ignorant, prejudiced. I'm here this morning to proclaim, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. Why? Because the Bible says it. Because God has said it. I don't hate anybody. 
I think everybody in America should have a right to freedom of speech and live out their life the way that they want to with other adults and should have their constitutional rights protected. But I don't believe that those constitutional rights include the right to have a marriage license from the state or Christians thrown in jail because they don't agree with it. I believe that God's plan for human sexuality is one man and one woman who are married to each other for a lifetime. I believe that because the pages of Scripture teach that. I believe that homosexuality is a sin, that the Bible calls it unseemly, vile affection, and an abomination unto God. I believe that abortion is murder. I believe that there are two genders, a man and a woman, and you're born one or the other, and you can't become the other simply by stating in your mind that it is so. I believe that not because it's my own idea, but because Jesus Christ said, Have you not read? When He created them, He made them male and female. I love those people too, by the way. Jesus died for them. A lot of times they need help, not hatred. But you can't agree with what's wrong just because it offends someone. You cannot do that. I believe that if you follow what the Muslims teach, it will not get you to God. The same with any religion in the world, including a Baptist church. If you follow that church and church membership to get to heaven, you will be lost. You're not saved by being a Baptist. You're saved by one way. That's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins, being applied when we receive Him. I believe that not because I came up with that idea, but because Jesus said it. I believe He's the only way to heaven. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. And I say like the Scripture says, let God be true and every man a liar. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us have courage. Let us contend for the faith. It's not about hating someone or about trying to be political or trying to be right. But there are some things that are taught in this Bible that we're going to have to stand up for or else we will have to be ashamed when we look at Christ as we see the wounds in His hands and in His feet. And we have no battle scars because we ran from the battle. Number one, we are called to contend for the faith. And finishing up here with a couple minutes left, number two, we must remember compassion. Jude, in verse number 20. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's what we do in opposition to what they do. Verse 22, and of some have compassion. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But what it means is on some have compassion. Go to those who need Jesus Christ and care about them and love them. I want any person who's involved in any sin I mentioned this morning to know that they're loved by me and that they're loved by Jesus Christ. And my sin is just as bad and your sin is just as bad in the eyes of God as as theirs are. Matthew 9.36 says of Jesus Christ that when He saw the multitudes as sheep having no shepherd, He was moved with compassion. Not with anger, not with the desire to strike them down in judgment, but to see them saved from their sins. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about charity, biblical love. And he says, if I could speak in the tongue of men and of angels and give all of of my goods to the poor and have the gifts of prophecy and every good spiritual thing and have not love, it does profit me nothing. And he said, if I have not love, I am become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Those things can be okay in the band, but if you listen to just that, what is two... Bang, 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 bang. It doesn't matter what you're saying. If you don't love people in your heart, that's what they're going to hear. It's been said people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Ephesians 4.15 could be the theme verse for any ministry when it says, Speaking the truth in love. We have to do both. We have to tell the truth, but we have to love people. There's a ditch on either side of the road. If we get so caught up on fighting for the truth that we forget to love people, they won't even hear us. But if we get so caught up and we just love everybody and all we want to talk about is God's love and we're afraid to offend them, then we will fail to speak the truth and we will have abdicated our duty before God. If you don't love people, you shouldn't be in the ministry. But if you're too cowardly to speak the truth, even though some people won't like it, you should not preach the Word of God either. True compassion is the compassion of Jesus Christ. When it it said it moved Him, He didn't just feel bad for them. He went to them. He loved them. He preached to them. He taught them. And yes, He died for them. 
True compassion moves and it gives as God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. As you look at those around you in sin, do not get angry at them. Remember that we were once lost. Remember that we once too were far from God and we didn't know the truth. And someone had to love us. Someone had to witness to us. Someone had to teach us and be patient with us. Don't hate people. God does not hate them. He loves them enough to die for them. Oh, Lord, help me. When I was uh, younger, years and years ago, the church was able to have a ministry where we had a bus that went out into the neighborhood and picked up kids and brought them to church. And a lot of times the people who were willing to come and let their kids come were lower income type of neighborhoods and homes and people who had a lot of, of, of issues and problems. And I remember times as a teenager where my heart was just broken because I would see this little kid crying and you could hear their parents yelling at them in the background. And some of them, they would get saved and they would want to come on for Jesus Christ and you could tell God was doing something in their heart and they still come back sometimes as adults because God did something real for them. And you would look at the sins of their family and look at just how far from God their whole cultural system and the drinking and the partying and I would think, Lord, you know, some people say, well, yeah, you say somebody got saved, where are they? If you don't have all those people in your church, then that was just a false convert. Let me ask you this, where would I be? Where would you be? Maybe in our Christian growth, if we had grown up in such a home, not everyone's going to look the same on the outside. You don't know what God did in someone's hearts. But throughout the years, we saw many of them make professions of faith. And right out, out back, uh, that pastor tells this story. Sometimes there was a teenager named Abraham, and he said he wasn't saved. And we went through the gospel. And, and I asked him, would you like to pray and receive Jesus Christ? And he said yes. And he prayed. And for some reason, I've always done this, where after someone prays, I ask them, did you mean that prayer? Were you sincere? The reason I say that is because I always try to emphasize a prayer in magic words doesn't save you. It's a genuineness. But if you sincerely call on the name of the Lord, then you will be saved. And this, I think, was the first time in my life he said, no, I didn't mean it. I said, why not? He said, I don't know. I said, well, when you come to God, if you want to be saved, I said, who do you love most? And he said, well, I love my mom. And I said, just like if you were to tell your mom that she was in danger or that you loved her or anything that you sincerely meant, if you will just speak to God that way and in your heart mean it and call to Him, He will save you. So I said, do you want to pray again? And he said, yes. And we prayed, and this time tears running down his face. And I said, well, did you mean at that time? He said, yeah, I meant at that time. Another teenager that on a Saturday we went through the gospel and he prayed. You never know what happens in their hearts. He may have prayed just because he, he was wanting to get out of there. I don't know. That's why we call it a profession of faith. And then we leave it up to God for what has happened or not happened. But he heard the gospel and he prayed. And a few years later, he was involved in an incident where he was stabbed. And as he was trying to walk back to his house, he fell down and died within about 10 feet of that spot where I had given him the gospel. And throughout the years, to see those people who came from the broken homes and to see the issues as an American Christian teenager in the church, it was good for me to see the way that other people had it that I would be grateful for what I had and that my heart would be moved with compassion. If someone hates you, if someone's involved in any wicked sin at all, that's a person that Jesus died for. And He wants us to love them. He wants us to try to share the gospel. He wants us, as we stand for the truth, to have compassion and to have a tear in our eye. The prophet Jeremiah said to the people about him, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? In other words, do you care? Does it matter to you at all? And I would say to his church this morning, we've got to stand for truth, but if we don't do it with compassion and a tear in our eye, then we're not going to get very far. Do you care? Does it matter to you that there are people who will die without Christ and be separated for all of eternity? Number one, we must contend for the faith. Number two, we must remember compassion. Number three, and I'm done, we must never forget that we can make an eternal difference. God help me, four minutes and I'm done. I'll go to 12.05 today instead of 12 o'clock. That's not too bad, really. Verse 22 said, And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, even the garment spotted by the flesh. My whole life, the way I've heard this preached was, have compassion and you can make a difference in the world. Make a difference for Christ. What the text, I believe, is actually saying is it says, Of some have compassion, on some people have compassion. Making a difference. The word means distinction. 
and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. In other words, some people will get saved by seeing your love and your compassion, but as you use wisdom, as the Apostle Paul did in different times, in different situations, you're having compassion, you love someone, you see someone who's being arrogant away from God, you make a distinction, and then you try to save by fear, by preaching the judgment of God and the eternal fire that is to come. God should give us wisdom, for on some we need to show compassion at some times, on some we need to... Show the fear and the judgment of God at some times, though surely at all times we're showing a little bit of both of them. But then the point that I've heard that verse preached so many times is making a difference in your society. Make a difference for eternity. It's very true by what the text is saying. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. There's only one thing that means. It means helping their soul escape the fires of hell. That is making an eternal difference. Hating the even the garment spotted by the flesh. This could probably be the closest thing in all of the Bible, Jude 22 through 23, the saying, hate the sin, love the sinner. That's what it's saying. Hate the garment, the flesh that is stained by sin, but love that person and have compassion on them. And as we live for Christ and as we are able to pull them, the Bible says God will use us to pull people out of the fire. I love church. I love to come here and sit and to be fed. But we have to remember our mission is also the gospel and those who don't know Jesus Christ. You could have the prettiest fire station in town that's always uh, uh, shined up and good meals there and a good time and people invited to come. But if there's a house that's on fire three, three doors down and they won't leave and go do their job, then they're failing in their duties. And as a church, let's come around the table, let's feast, but let's remember there's a world we're supposed to live in and people that need Jesus Christ. There was a a young man that was down by the beach one day and all the starfish had washed up onto the shore and if they were left out in the sun, they would die. So he was picking them up and throwing them back into the water one by one. And an old man was walking by and he said, Son, look at how many those are. That tide's going to be here any minute. You're not really making a difference. You're barely going to dent that. You're wasting your time. And he turned to walk away and the younger guy thought about it and he said, Excuse me, sir. And he picked one up, threw it in. He said it made a difference for that one. It made a difference for that one. We may not be able to see revival and the whole world get saved like we want to, but every soul is precious to God. And if we stay the course and pray that He will allow us to see people saved, He will allow us to make a difference that is an eternal difference. Our country, our community, whatever we can do to stand up for what's right, let's do it. But most of all, let's live for Jesus Christ. And if you contend for truth with compassion in your heart is the key, you can make an eternal difference. Verse 24 and 25, Now unto him that is able, we are not able, but he is, to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and ever, both and power both now and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Rachel will come and we'll play some music. Let's have a time of prayer this morning. Let's resolve in our hearts we will stand for the truth, but let's also resolve in our hearts that we will love the people who Jesus loves and died for. And remember that if we will stay the course and do His will, whatever it looks like, we can make an eternal difference. Let's continue in prayer.